If you turn to Genesis chapter 2, Genesis chapter 2, we're going to pick up in verse 8 down to verse 14. And the Garden of Eden, or the Garden. Now this place that is called the Garden uh, is symbolic in a whole bunch of different ways, and we're going to cover those tonight. One of the things that people will gravitate towards in the sense of trying to live a life that is holy or a life that is God-pleasing is towards what we affectionately call asceticism. That is the removal of every bit of external stimuli that might possibly cause one to be in a position to sin. Chief among those who practiced that were actually those who were responsible largely for what we call the Dead Sea Scrolls. Dead Sea Scrolls were believed to have been copied by the Essenes. Uh, They were an ascetic sect that lived in the Negev Desert on the western side of the the Dead Sea in a region that, unless you've been there, uh, it's almost hard to understand exactly how desolate, how hot, and unhospitable a place it is. It is a pile of red rocks that most of the year, uh, the temperature during the daytime exceeds 90 degrees. There's no running water. Water has to be funneled in from the mountains through rainstorms and stored in cisterns. But the whole point of the Essenes was to put themselves in such a place that there would be zero temptation to sin. And so thereby, one would think, of course you'll end up holy. You just take away everything that might possibly cause your mind to go someplace it shouldn't go. Here's the problem. It don't work because you can take all of the sin out of the world and you're still going to have a world full of sinners amen because we were actually created by god in a fashion originally in adam to have the capacity to live sinless lives when adam sinned every person that's been born since them through adam and eve have been born with a sin nature. And so irregardless of what you do to the outside, you're still going to find that you have a capacity to sin and you will in fact gravitate towards sin irregardless of what the external looks like. And no better place to see that than here in the Garden of Eden. And so let's pray and we'll ask the Lord to speak to us through these verses. Father, we have again... Just come because we want to hear from you. We want to know what your word says. Uh, We we want to live our lives in a way that's pleasing to you. And so we pray that as we study tonight here in Genesis chapter 2, that as you authored these words and undoubtedly uh, Adam was the first to hear them, we, we pray that you would just help us to have understanding, cause our spirits to soar and grow. Lord, as you would work in our lives, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 8, Genesis 2. The Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden. Now, I want you to take note of the words that are used here because they are, as almost always they are, but very significant in this, in this particular uh, context. God is doing something very specific for the benefit and the blessing of Adam and Eve. 
He's going to take great care to create an environment in which they will be really, really happy. And so he plants a garden. He he doesn't just let the trees run their wild course. He takes care to put certain trees in certain places. He becomes, in essence, uh, the earth's first gardener. And so God plants a garden eastward in Eden. uh, And there he put the man whom he had formed. And, of course, we're going to run into some of the details uh, in the next chapter about what he's doing there. And out of the ground the Lord God made every tree grow that is pleasant to the sight. Now, we just returned from the island of Kava'i. And it is absolutely stunning when you look at the variety of the plant life on the Nepali coast. And as you, as you look at the, the flowers, the trees, the plants, every single plant that is there growing on that particular coast is, is stunning in the most minute of detail. It is truly as if God had designed those plants so that when you looked at them, you were amazed. Now that's what's left after thousands of years of mankind abusing the planet. Can you imagine what it looked like when God took all of his care to make everything in this garden that he specifically himself designed to be pleasing to the sight and took every plant? Can you imagine what the Garden of Eden actually looked like? If God's goal was to make it beautiful for Adam, I don't know how many of you have been to the Huntington Library or traveled around there. There's a garden on the island of Kauai called the Allerton Gardens, and it's just this, this incredible amount of time that was put into to spaces being created with plants that look like rooms. But imagine that the, the creative genius behind the world's garden was none other than the creator himself. What do you think he could do with that plant life? We're not told exactly what it looks like, but I can tell you this. Adam was amazed. Adam looked at it, and he was just like blown away. Pleasant to the sight. And then notice, he didn't have to carry a sack lunch with him. He didn't have to go in the garden and then go someplace else to eat. He didn't visit the national park and then go stay in some yucky motel outside of the park boundaries. He lived in the most beautiful spot in the entire universe as far as humankind was concerned. And he did not have to go anywhere for food. He could just wander around and go, that is awesome. He was in the most idyllic environment that you can possibly imagine. And the tree of life was also in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So two trees, they are different. They are not the same tree, and we're going to look at both those trees in some detail tonight. So the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And now a river went out of Eden to water the garden. And from there it parted and became four river heads, or four tributaries is another word that you could substitute there from the original language. And the name of the first was Pishon, and it was the one which skirts the whole land of Havilah. And there was, in, where there was gold, and the gold of that land is good. Bedellium, the onyx stone are there. 
The name of the second river is Gihon. And it's the one which goes around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is Hidekel, the one which goes east towards Assyria. And the fourth river is the river Euphrates. And so God creates this perfect dwelling place. And as he does so, he's doing something very purposeful and very, very willful. Because as I've spoken to you before, in order for love to really truly have meaning, love must be volitional. It requires that there is a choice made by the person who loves to love the person who is being loved and vice versa. There is no such thing that is that as love if you simply create something that leaves no choice but to accept one outcome. That's not love. That's creating, in essence, an automaton or a robot. That's putting someone in an environment where there is no choice. And so whether that person is good to you or bad to you has no bearing on anything other than the fact that you've put them in an environment where there's really nothing to choose. And so God here is not creating an environment where there's no choice. He's simply by choice creating an environment where Adam is most likely to love him. Most likely to have very little external stimuli to do anything but, but he is still leaving Adam's choice fully in view. And we're going to see that because Adam is going to make the wrong choice. So don't think that God is kind of over-prepping Adam with goodness here. He's simply showing his unwavering kindness and care and concern and his desire that Adam live a life that is wonderful. God created us to live lives that are wonderful. One of the restorative powers of what happens to us as the children of God is we are now given a new life. We are a new creation in Christ Jesus. The old things are passing away, and we now have the capacity to live an abundant life, a life that is more like Eden than the world that we currently live in. And so God has always looked after and cared for the, the, the basic condition of man, and he wants it to be good. He's never wanted mankind to live in the state which we live in currently. Racism grieves God. War grieves God. Crime grieves God. Pollution grieves God. Destruction grieves God. He is not the author of evil. He allows evil to exist because if there's nothing to choose, then he has, in fact, created a robot. He's just simply made your, your environment so wonderful that there's no choice to make. So God allows evil to exist. It puts, it puts reality into the word choice or volition. But make no mistake, God's plan and God's desire is not any of the garbage that we deal with on this earth. I personally do not believe he created mosquitoes. I think poison oak is from the pit of hell. There, there are a lot of things that we have in this world that I believe are a direct result of the fall. There are little abominations that, that the enemy has placed in, in view for us. But it was not so originally. 
And so God creates this very perfect dwelling place. And what it's going to serve to show us is you can take every single temptation, you can make a perfect environment, you can remove all of the external stimuli and outside influences. It is really somewhat, you know, if it weren't sad, it would be very humorous. But I, I've had people tell me, you know, well, I just, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to throw away the TV and I'm going to blow up the, you know, the stuff in my house. I'm going to get rid of everything and that I won't sin. And I have to look at them and go, that ain't happening. You're still going to sin. You may sin less. It's possible. But you might just simply get a whole lot more creative in trying to find ways to sin. Because you're a sinner. You can take all the sin out of the environment, but you can't take the sinner out of a sinner because you are a sinner. That's why you need Jesus. Without him, you don't stand a chance because you actually are a sinner. And so Adam gets some very special attention here. A region was called Edom uh, or Eden, and it, and it simply means luxury or delight. It actually means finery. It, it means a beautiful place. It, it, it has the connotation of if you thought in your mind, this is as good as it can get, this is it. So he's really being descriptive here as he describes this place. And, and he's going to focus in on man. But as you look at the construction of man, as you look at who we are as human beings, we are very, very simple creatures in, in, if you were to break us down. Average person, if you look at how you're actually constructed metabolically, uh, you, you've got about 58 pounds of oxygen combined with some about 50 quarts of water and a couple of pounds of salt and some sulfur. and um, You've got a whole bunch of carbon in you because you're a carbon-based life form. You've got a tad of chlorine. You've got some fat in you and some iron and glycerin and a whole bunch of trace chemicals. But at the end of the day, you're just dirt. So God creates this beautiful place for, for mankind whom he has breathed life into, created in his image, but we're still made out of dirt. He must really care for us piles of dirt. He actually loves us because he took all this care to take care of Adam. If you were to dig out a do-it-yourself kit for you, I mean, it wouldn't cost you much. At a, you could go to a garden shop or a fertilizer store and probably for under 20 bucks, you could get all the chemicals you're made out of. But there's a, there's a beauty in all of this because even though you're made out of dirt, you are the most complex machine that has ever existed in the universe. You are the most complex machine that has ever existed in the universe. Humankind. Man. And the reason we know that is, is the study of the field of medicine. Pathology. Virology. All of the medical sciences... When you begin to break down the, just a, a little, if, if you take a little postage stamp size piece of your skin that again is made out of stuff from a fertilizer store. But so much creative energy was put into the creation of Adam and consequently every human being that has existed since him 
If you take just a little tiny postage stamp sized piece of skin, there's three million cells in there. Three million. Look at a postage stamp, look at your skin, and go three million cells. Those three million cells exist in about 20 different types. In that little tiny area, there's almost a meter over three feet of blood vessels in a postage stamp size piece of your skin. There's, there's a hundred sweat glands. And by the way, you may not want to sweat, but you ought to thank God that you do. Because if you don't sweat, you will eventually, if you live in a climate where it's warm, you will die. There's 15 oil glands in that little piece of skin. Why am I telling you? Because it's all made out of dirt. And yet it's so amazingly intricate that God created all of these systems in just your skin. There's probably a couple of dozen nerve endings in there. Does that sound like chance to you? You're made out of dirt, but you have all that complexity in that little tiny piece of skin, which, by the way, is your largest organ. And yet you're made out of dirt. And God makes this incredible garden to plant Adam in the middle of. And so as you start to think on on this whole concept of the, the Garden of Eden, look, there's something that we can learn from this. God must have had a deep and abiding care for his creation if he would take something that was made out of dirt and then put all the creative energy in it so that when Adam looked at the Garden of Eden, he said, this is the finest place I could ever be. It's what the name means. Back in the 1980s, before the Iron Curtain fell, I was in what was still then Yugoslavia, before it became all the Baltic republics and became Serbia and Croatia and all of those places. But when we were there, the the Soviet Union had just finished building all these absolutely stunning apartment buildings in the the city uh, of Belgrade in Yugoslavia. And we were riding on this train, beautiful brand new train, that went dead through the middle of this freshly constructed area of all these high-rise apartment complexes. And the whole thing was a complete farce. Because when you drove on the train, you saw the fronts of the buildings. And as soon as you got off the train and went over one street, you could see the backs of the buildings. They weren't even finished. They were completely open. The back of the building wasn't even done. It was made to look like it was finished, and it was made to look like it was good, but it was made by man for man. It wasn't good. That wasn't what God did here in the Eden. He didn't didn't make a place that looked good on the outside. He made a place that was good. So Adam gets this incredible special attention. You see, the first thing he would know is that God loved him. He'd wake up in the morning and, man, God loves me. You ever wonder why the Apostle Paul would say, as he put it so eloquently there in Romans chapter 1, the things that can be known about him are known by the creation, for they testify of him. That's why he said that. 
God intended for us to know that we are cared for by what we see in the creation. And Adam knew it better than you and I will ever know it because this world is not the way God created it. It has places that are close. But Adam's reality was he understood what God was doing. One of the things that we're told here is of these two trees, first of which is, of course, the tree of life. And all of the, you know, I I don't know how many of you like gardening. We have an awful lot of plants in our yard, vegetables, all kinds of stuff, because we just like to grow things. It's it's a little bit of a little bit of an art form, I think, at times. But I don't have a tree of life in our backyard. It's not there. I I've been looking around and I haven't been able to find it. Of all those trees and shrubs and things in the garden, there were two very important trees, and they must have absolutely been able to be distinguished from all the rest of the trees. Otherwise, God's a liar. And I know he's not a liar. And so the tree of life planted right in the middle of the garden. So Adam could transect and bisect and any way go across the garden he wanted. If he went through the middle, he would always end up near the tree of life. And if if eaten of regularly, I, I believe it would uh, keep mortal men ultimately from uh, the effects of aging. But as you look at, we'll get that more of that in chapter three. But it says there in chapter three in verse twenty-two, and then the Lord said, "Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil." You see, of those two trees, that the knowledge of good and evil was the thing that man was never intended to know. Because in that knowledge of good and evil is the capacity to sin. To him who knows it's sin, it's sin. And so what Adam did was took his perfect mind that had no capacity at that time. He was, he was born with free will, but he was not born with the knowledge of sin. And so that one tree out of all the trees any other tree was fine, but the one choice that had to be there for Adam's love to be volitional. Said, Adam, here's what you can do. You can, do, you can eat of any tree here. We're going to see this when we get to chapter 3. You, you, can, you can have all you want of anything you want, but don't eat of that tree. And so God speaks into, into that time in chapter 3 and verse 22 Behold, man has become like one of us to know good and evil. You see, God knows every kind of evil and God knows every kind of good. The difference is he's perfect, so he never acts on evil. He has no capacity to act on it. He just knows about it. Man had the capacity to act on it. And now lest he put his hand out and take also of the tree of life and live forever, you see, when we get to chapter 3, we're going to see the grace of God. We're going to see the mercy of God. Because if Adam had been given the capacity to live forever with now the capacity to sin, that tree of life was actually a death sentence to him. And it was a long, arduous death. We, get to, we studied Revelation chapter 22. The tree of life was in Revelation chapter 22 as well. Same tree, I believe. It's going to be replanted in the garden. Except at that time, then the fruit's going to change every month. Now, that's going to be a cool tree. You go out one month and there's apples, and the next month there's pears, and the next month there's peaches, and the next month there's pomegranate. I don't know. But I know what it says. It says it's going to change fruit. It's going to have 12 different kinds, and it's going to change monthly. You see, 
God loves to take care of his kids. And he loves for that care to be very distinguishable from randomness. He wants us to know, so he does things for us that that show us that love. Man has been trying to get a hold of that tree of life for a very long time. And there are people who are still trying to do it. Matter of fact, the, the modern study of aging or gerontology is actually focused on trying to help us live longer. Now, I, as long as I've lived on this earth, I'm not sure living longer is a good thing. Now, I'm not suggesting that anyone should go home early. But I'm pretty sure with the way this world is currently going, if God leaves you here for 120 years, he just doesn't like you. Doesn't want you in heaven or something. Because it's way better there than it is here. Of course, I'm just kidding. But you see, we were intended to enjoy the presence of the Lord. And we will not, while this earth is like it is, have the presence of the Lord fully here. The only place you're going to have that right now is in heaven. So until he brings heaven back to earth, we should all kind of want to be there and not here. So when Christians are talking, well, you know, I want to live to be this long, or, you know, I'd like to, to extend my life indefinitely, you get people like Ray Kurzweil or some of those that believe that, you know, if we just stick a bunch of nanobots in us, we can fix all the problems that we have, and then we could live forever. It's not going to happen. That's why Adam was forbidden. You, you cannot do this because I don't want you to have the capacity to sin and live forever. If you have the capacity to sin, I want to make sure that you can get out of that. So he enters enters into the world, death enters into the world is is really the solution to that. It's like you're not going to live in that capacity forever. You'll only struggle with that sin nature while you're here. And, And what we see in this is that God is the giver of life, so he has the right to take it whenever he wants. That that's his that's his deal. And so this tree of life, Proverbs chapter 11 tells us, is actually a, a tree that is, is supposed to win souls. It's supposed to make you wise. It's supposed to bring you closer to the Lord. That tree was also good for food. And so it kind of had a dual purpose in, in Adam's life. As he's looking at it, he's going, man, I can live forever if I eat of that thing, and I'm going to know things that nobody else knows. Because I'm going to live longer, I'll gain wisdom as I get older, and, and pretty soon if I just live long enough, then I'll gain everything that God has. And so it was a little bit of a nefarious motivation between living, by living longer. And that same motivation kind of exists today. A lot of people who want to live longer want to live longer so that they can supposedly enjoy the, the things that are on this earth. The problem is the things on this earth are all passing away. So even if you live for as long as this earth existed, you're still not going to live long enough to enjoy the things that you are looking for. That's why the search for that particular type of life is a vain search. Uh, that's why when Ponce de Leon went to Florida in 1544, he's looking for this fountain of youth. That, that's why he didn't find it. Because God didn't intend for us to stay here indefinitely. He created us to live forever, but he created us to live forever in his presence, not on this earth. And so if his presence is not on this earth, then you want to be wherever he is. Brings up a question, and that question is, why do men die? You ever thought about that? Why do men die? There are people that believe that we shouldn't actually die. 
that we should have the capacity. There's really nothing inherent within us that actually kills us. But the truth of the matter is, inherent within us now is a built-in barcode. Basically, it says you have an expiration date, and it was put there by God. Not because he doesn't want you to live forever, because in the eternal sense, you will all live forever. forever. It's just a question of where you're going to spend that eternity. But why do our bodies die? Death came into mankind not as a natural process of aging. Death came to mankind because of sin. That's why we die. The reason that men die today is not a faulty creation by a messed up creator, but because of sin. The things that destroy us is sin. God, God's warning was clear, and, and Adam disobeys that, rebels against the word of the God, and, and he eats of the knowledge of the tree of, or the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And when he eats of that, his eyes are open, and sin, Romans 5:12 says to us, and then sin entered into the world. And through that sin, death. That's what your Bible tells you. So when people say, well, you know, we could live forever if we just cured this and cured that. No, you can't. Because as long as we have a sin nature, the effects of that sin nature is going to be death. That's why we die. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 tells us, by, by man came death and in Adam all died. Get it? So don't count on living forever. At least not in the body that you currently have. Now that should actually excite most of us. Because I could use a new tent. I have abused the current one. We're doing a little hiking on the Nepali coast. And I'm like, you know what? That knee kind of hurts. Didn't used to do that. It's because it wasn't designed to work forever. It's designed to work while I'm here. And then I'm going to need a new body suited for that new heaven, that new earth, that new life. The question also comes up is how long is forever? Because this is, you're supposed to live forever here. And there's an interesting word that's translated forever here. And it's actually the, the Hebrew word, hola. And it's not like the Spanish hola. It's O-L-A. It's hola. But it actually can mean a very long time. It does not necessarily have to mean forever as an eternal. It can just mean a very, very, very long time. And we certainly see that in the life of the, of the patriarchs, those that were in, especially during Adam's time, they lived an extremely long time. And in fact, Adam's going to live 930 years. Now, I don't know about you. If I lived 930 years, I ha- somebody would carry me in a bucket. It would just not be good. Yeah, the amount of damage that, you know, I've done to my cartilage. And I'm actually about an inch shorter than I was when I was in high school and college. Just because I have not been kind to my spine. You know, it's kind of compresses. You see, the things of this earth were not designed to last forever. They were designed to last for a very long time. And that very long time eventually is going to be up. How long do hills last? We think of mountains as being eternal. They're not eternal. They last for a very long time. We, we think of the earth in that sense. It, it's not eternal. It's not forever. It's just a very long time. And so God was saying, look, this forever that I'm talking about here, this tree of life that can help you live forever, is, is not forever in that sense. 
It's forever in that you would live longer than you live currently because you wouldn't have all the effects of the sin. And so you'd just live for a very long time. I don't know what the tree looks like. People always ask, they go, what did it look like? I haven't got a clue. God doesn't tell us. Anybody that tells you that they know what it was is just making up a story because we're not told. Nobody's got a picture of it. You know, it wasn't posted on Instagram. Uh, you know, they, we didn't have any biologists around at that time that were taking pictures of everything that was in the garden. We do not know. We don't, we don't have any idea what that fruit was. But we do know that it was very remarkable. And we do know that it will come back. We do know that it will, it will be uh, in the garden. And in the garden that God is going to plant eventually in the new heaven and the new earth, it actually will produce actual long life that one could call eternal. And so God's going to bring it back. I can't wait to eat of it at that point in time. Right now, I, I wouldn't want to eat of it because I don't want to stay on this earth. I'd like to go home at some point in time. There's another tree that's mentioned here, and it's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which is also planted somewhere in the garden. We're not told exactly where. And, and we'll get some additional details when we get to chapter 3. But the one thing that we need to know is, is that it was forbidden. There are a lot of things that look good that God has said, do not do this. There are a lot of things that sound good that God has said, do not do this. There, there are people, you know, we, those of us who are children of the 60s, if it feels good, do it. And we, we, we were, we, I, you know, we're of that generation that unfortunately introduced narcissism, I think, into this world. It's like, do whatever pleases you. God does not let us live existence that way. That's why he said, look, you're to hate the things that I hate. You're to love the things that I love. You are to be therefore holy because I am a holy God. There are things that God said no to. You, you can't do it. It's not for you to make that decision. God's already decided that for you, for me, for us. And that was true of that tree that was of the knowledge of good and evil. And it's interesting that when we get into that in chapter 3 and we begin to look at it from Adam and Eve's perspective, you're going to see something that's, that's pretty remarkable. Because the three basic ways that Adam and Eve are tested in, in that tree are exactly the same test that you will face today. And you can find them there in, in 1 John uh, in chapter 2. And that's why it says, Do not love the world or the things in this world. For anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him, not in her. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. He's saying those passions, those powers, those possessions, those things that you can lay hold of, look at, those things that might drive you uh, away from God, that's the very substance of the other tree. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Because there are really good things that if you use them wrongly, they can turn into evil. Amen? Let me name one. Money. You can have all kinds of money, and if you use it correctly, it's good. It's not the money itself. It's how you use it. So that's a good thing that if you have knowledge and you use it correctly, it's good. But if you have knowledge of evil and act on the evil, then a good thing can become evil. Why do you suppose that we've been warned that in the last days men will call evil good and good evil? 
It's part of the effect of this tree. So these basic temptations that are in your heart, in my heart, in our hearts, our rebellious hearts, uh, our, our basic nature, that's why God was warning Adam and Eve, don't eat of this tree. Don't do it. Because the moment you do it, your eyes are going to be opened. Don't do it. You know, one of the things that's so dangerous in our world right now is destroying especially our young people, our cell phones. You talk about the knowledge of good and evil. God created sex, in case you hadn't noticed that. And he made it very good, as he did everything else. But the knowledge of evil, to go along with that good, now, now you put that in front of somebody on a second-by-second basis, that knowledge itself becomes bad. It becomes evil. Something that God intended for good has become evil. And so it is with all kinds of things. And so God said, I'd rather that you didn't know these things. But what was Adam and Eve's struggle? Well, my flesh says God's trying to hide something from me. My eyes say that looks awesome. I mean, look at the size of that fruit on that tree. And you've got to know whatever fruit was on there, it was some luscious color of like, oh, that's got to be good. Or the pride of just doing things your own way, the pride of life. Same things that affect us. They affected Adam and Eve. You, you see, it, it's one thing to, to have a thought. It's another thing to experiment with those thoughts. That other tree was that way to experimentation. Actually knowing evil. God plants his garden. And luscious it was, beautiful it was, and it had an abundance of water in it. And I'll close with a with a few things on the on the water in the garden. Now you can't see it, and this should make you just really hunger for those new video screens that are going to be up there because in that is actually a photo of the springs at Banyas, which are uh, one of the headwaters of the River Jordan. Actually, one of the main tributaries. There's two of them. Uh, in, in Jordan, in case you didn't know, Jor means out of, and Dan means Dan, as in the tribe of Dan. So the Jordan River is because the Jordan River is out of the region of Dan. But one of the tributaries, the Springs of Banyas, the entire river actually erupts directly out of the ground. It is not there, and then it is there. And it's 40 or 50 feet wide and several feet deep, and just the whole thing just pops right out of the ground. It's because... In, in that region, because of Mount Hermon and the mountains that are to the north of, north of Israel and southern Lebanon, uh, all of that water is collecting in an aquifer and it just bubbles it w- its way up. So people say, well, this is p- impossible. You couldn't have four, four rivers. I can take you to a place right now, travel to Israel with us, and I can show you two places where this happens. It happens also with the main tributary of the Jordan River uh, when you're actually in the old Canaanite city of Dan. You can hike alongside of it, and you get to a place to where all of a sudden the other tributary of the Jordan River just pops directly out of the ground. 
So, so God's been causing things to happen that we can't explain for a very, very, very long time. And now a river went out of Eden, it says in verse 10, to water the garden. And if you've ever been to the High Sierras and wandered around in the High Sierra meadow, uh, there's no irrigation up there. There's no sprinklers. And yet, absolutely beautiful and filled with wildflowers and 100, 200 feet either side of any creek, uh, you'll find all of that lush goodness of the Lord. And so it says that these springs popped up and they became four river heads and those rivers had specific names. And people have tried forever to try and figure out where this is and why it is and whether these rivers are the same rivers that existed today. And I can tell you emphatically, I do not believe that there is any sense whatsoever in trying to figure out where the Garden of Eden was exactly or if these rivers still existed because of a very large event that we're going to see when we get to chapters 7, 8, and 9 called Noah's Flood. So all of the basic traveling places of the rivers of that time have been completely altered. Floodwaters overflowed that whole region. And so wherever those rivers were at the time of Adam... Um, they are almost assuredly not still in exactly the same place. So we only have two that we can name for sure here, and there there are four of them named. So uh, the river Pishon and Gihon, neither of those two exist anywhere in the world today. They're, they're, they're completely unknown. Uh, Hidekel is actually the exact same name uh, as the name Tigris. So it could be that that's the Tigris River. It could be uh, that it is a different river in the same region. But there, there is reason to believe that a couple of these rivers are, are likely from the region that we call uh, the Middle East. And, of course, the Euphrates is still called the Euphrates, and it has for several thousand years. So um, this is likely the Tigris and the Euphrates region, to be sure. The rest of them you can't identify. But I, I, there are a couple of things I do want to look at here in just a, just a moment. You see, as these rivers feed this, what God's really trying to get across to us is anything that you need, I've got covered. It is I will supply all of your needs according to my riches and glory. In Christ Jesus, for us in the New Testament, what God always had his people taken care of. But he had his people taken care of in obedience. When they were obedient to God, when God's people were obedient, then they dwelled in the garden. But when they were disobedient, they got kicked out of the garden. When they did what God asked, they they dwelled in beauty and splendor and wonder and abundance. And when they didn't do what God asked, they suffered the consequences of their action. That has not changed. That's exactly why Galatians 6 says what it says. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Do you not know that whatsoever a man or a woman sows, that he shall also reap? So if you live your life in disobedience to God, you too will be kicked out of his goodness. You're going to end up not living in the garden. You're not going to be by the springs of water. You will not have the provision that God wants you to have. If you want blessing in your life, then be obedient to what the Lord says. If you want the blessings that God has for you, then be obedient to what he says. It's a simple process. Our problem is, is we try and test whether God means what he says and says what he means. And so just like Adam and Eve, we're wondering, well, I think I can eat of that. I'm pretty sure it won't bother me. And I can take this liberty. I mean, after all, hasn't he created all things good for us to enjoy? So I'm just going to enjoy this even though I know he said not to. 
Now, if you want God's best, you must walk in obedience to what he says. Otherwise, you get what you can get. And for most of us that have lived a while on this earth, we can tell you, please, in Jesus' name, don't go down that road. Don't believe that God is, in, is, is trying to somehow rob you of some wonderful thing by telling you no. If God has told you no, it's because he knows that you shouldn't do it. He knows you shouldn't go there. He knows you shouldn't be in that relationship. He knows you shouldn't take that substance. He knows you shouldn't take that job. He knows that you ought to live your life in a manner that's well-pleasing to him. And if you choose not to do it, then you too will not be in the garden that God wants for you. You're going to be out where the tumbleweeds grow. That's the, that's the suffering that Adam uh, will undertake as we, as we continue in this narrative. But where is this, and why would Eden even be important to us? And, and while we cannot, we cannot pinpoint the exact location of Eden, I think there is a figurative way for us to look at it, because the, the Pishon is just an unknown river. Uh, the Gihon is not the, the spring or the stream Gihon that flows around. People have tried to cram into this narrative that somehow the Euphrates and the Tigris and the, the Gihon springs and the river that comes out of it that flow uh, next to the Temple Mount today that has got to be that one. Well, it's described as around the land of Cush. That's in Ethiopia. So there's just no chance that you can stuff those into any kind of narrative. And since, you know, people usually then say, well, it must be Egypt, and maybe it's talking about the Nile, and, it, you know, maybe it was further east and it was the Ganges. It doesn't matter, because there is something that we can learn from this particular passage. And here, here's why we know that. There are two rivers here that we can't identify. And, and they're identified with another person that was given the exact same opportunity, and you know his name. His name is Abraham. The promise that was made to Abraham was a promise based also on these two rivers. The Tigris and the Euphrates. The great river. And there, when we get to Genesis chapter 15, we're going to see it. He said, I'm going to give you a land and that land is going to be a good land. It's going to be the promised land. It's going to be a land that flows with milk and honey. It's going to be a beautiful place. So much so I'm going to call it Canaan. I'm going to call it paradise of God. And so part of that is figuratively a way for us to look at. God has said when we're obedient to him, then we dwell in his promises. When we do what he asks, then we have what he's promised to give us. You know, very often people want to hold God to the promises he's made while not keeping their side of what he said to do. You know, Jesus is pretty specific. He says, if you love me, keep my commandments. So if you love him, if you want to have a love relationship with him, then keep his commandments. Do what he asks us to do. This passage in a, in a Hebrew sense parallels a, a lot of things. Where, where did Messiah minister? <laughs> the east of the rivers, Tigris and Euphrates. Where did Abraham settle? The rivers east of Tigris and Euphrates. Where is the new Jerusalem in Revelation 21 located east of the rivers, Tigris and Euphrates? We notice the land of promise or the promised land. 
But in a much greater way, God ties all of his promises into us being faithful. Now, we, we're not conditioned by grace. Grace is a free gift. But grace is supposed to produce in us a heartfelt desire to be obedient to God. It's supposed to create in us something that is so monumentally overwhelming to our psyche and to our soul that we wouldn't want to do anything else. Now, people will say, well, you know, you're saved because we do works. No, you're not saved because you do works, but you are saved unto good works, that's for sure. If you want the blessings of God, then you do things a blessed way. And so the real picture here is that Adam had an opportunity to be obedient to what God told him to do and live smack dab in the middle of paradise. That's the lesson from these verses. Adam had the opportunity to be obedient to God and live smack dab in the middle of paradise and have everything taken care of for him. But instead of doing that, he chose to follow after his disobedience, as we will see as we move on. He chose to not listen to God. And the result of not listening to God, God said, that's not what I want for you, but if that's what you want for you, I will honor your choice. And so now you get to work for a living, Adam. So guys, gals, when you get to heaven, do not beat up on Adam. Don't give him a beat down because you had to work your whole life. But that's part of the curse. One of the reasons we are not wandering around picking fruit off of trees going God is good is because Adam allowed death to enter into the world through his disobedience. But don't be too harsh on him because you would have done the same thing. You would have likely acted on it as well. But the lesson is this. You have an opportunity to say no. You've got an opportunity to resist the devil and watch him flee. You've got an opportunity to live in that, in, that, in essence, glorious paradoxical way uh, with the Lord in his goodness. That choice is still yours. It's always been mankind's. Eve had the opportunity. Adam had the opportunity. Their sons, Cain and Abel, had the opportunity. Shem, Ham, Japheth, Noah, all of them had the opportunity. They all got the same opportunity. Be obedient and have the blessings of the Lord. So if you want the obedience to result in blessings, then do what God says. And you can live in Eden. Now it's not going to be the same Eden, but as much as you can have it while it's on this earth, the shortest path, the shortest path to God's blessings is by being obedient to what he says. Amen? I'm going to bring the worship team back out. Bring the pastors up front and maybe you've been going through a time in your life where you're kind of wondering where God went that's one of the things that we're going to see next as, as we go through the the account of now Eve coming on the scene and sin and what it does and the separation I'll give you a little preview here it's not a matter of where God went. It's a matter of where you went. God didn't move. You did. God's unchangeable. So the only way that you can be out of the blessings of God and away from the presence of God is you move. 
Maybe that's you tonight. Maybe you haven't experienced really the, the blessings of God recently in your life. And I would simply ask you, no condemnation whatsoever, but I would ask you, is there something in your life that has moved you out of the garden? Have you done something that's taken your own life and, and caused God to say, you know, you're acting like you don't want to be here with me? Because disobedience does that. It's not that God doesn't want you. You've made it tough by your actions. Maybe you need to deal with some stuff in your life. If that's you, the pastors are going to come forward. They're going to be available for prayer. Here's the good news. By grace and through faith, you're saved and you're a child of God. And repentance is like that. You you can just say, God, I'm sorry. I'm not going to do that anymore. And you can be right back in his presence. God will deal with those, those things by his grace and through his mercy. But if you haven't been experiencing the blessings of God, it's very likely you moved out of the garden. You're not in the garden spot anymore. You want to be in the garden. You want to be walking around with God going, oh my goodness, that's beautiful. Thank you, Lord, for taking care of me. Thank you for providing so richly. Get back to the garden. Father, we thank you tonight (laughs) that you have given us all things richly to enjoy. And Lord, that still applies to us. God, you want us to live in in that glorious garden of God. Your garden. that, That sweet place where our human will is taken care of because it's in subjection to your will. Our desires are kept in check because we desire what you desire more than what our flesh desires. Lord, we pray that you give us victory over areas of our life where we may have stumbled and fallen. And so, Lord, as we uh, now worship you and, and spend some time in prayer and at the communion table, God, would you, by your Spirit, help us to get back to walking with you in the garden. We ask these things in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen.